Secure your digital world in physical form with IM8Bit. For over 15 years, IM8Bit has been crafting premium expansions of the industry's best games, from pioneering community experiences for Epic's Fortnite World Cup to bringing over 100 award-winning soundtracks from breakout hits like Untitled Goose Game and Disco Elysium to vinyl, and bringing the Ori sequel to Switch. Their passion for artistry and gaming fuels them, whether they're interpreting beloved brands from a new point of view or extending the mythology of another game, perhaps one you're developing. What's the IM8Bit difference? Their collectibles are premium, but for IM8Bit, they're personal too. See for yourself at im8bit.com. Welcome to The Game Maker's Notebook, a podcast featuring a series of in-depth one-on-one conversations between game makers providing a thoughtful, intimate perspective on the business and craft of interactive entertainment. The Game Maker's Notebook is presented by the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, a member-driven organization dedicated to the recognition and advancement of interactive entertainment. Hello, and welcome to the Game Maker's Notebook. I'm your host today, Robin Haneke, and I'm here today with Lizette Tichula Montgomery. And we're going to be talking with her about her experience in the games industry over 20 years now, uh, working in the industry, currently the art director at Double Fine, and just shipped Psychonauts 2. So really, congratulations on shipping your most recent game. Um, I just want to start off the show a little bit by talking with you about how you broke into the industry. We often try to um, lead the segment with just, you know, how you got to be where you are today. So welcome. Well, thank you for having me. Um, it's a great show and, and I'm really just happy to like catch up with you, Robin, and just like share what this whole experience has been like for me. Um, I guess the best way to start is from the beginning. Um, yeah. I knew I wanted to be an artist. I just didn't know what kind. At first I thought it was fashion design and then I thought I was going to be a photographer in high school. And then um, a recruiter from Ringling College came to my um, photography class and I was just blown away. It was like the first time I saw CG. Um, and this was like 1995 when I graduated, you know, I'm dating myself. Um, <laughs> I graduated in 91. So, <laughs> um, so I just knew like, I don't know what this is, but I, but I want to do it. Um, and so I got my degree in computer animation and I thought I was going to, you know, move to California and work for Pixar. But um, once I got here, I actually got my first job in games um, at a small studio called Page 44. Um, my portfolio with character designs and work was good enough to get hired. And I've been in games ever since. And it's been, well, it'll be 21 years soon. That's so great. It's been a long road. <laughs> When you first heard about CG, I remember being in college and I ran a like a like a CGI lab um, in as an undergrad. And I remember looking at the computers and just thinking like, wow, they're so magical. Uh, it was so slow to make stuff on the computer. It took forever. Like, what was it about it that um, that gave you the the sort of patience to stick with it? Because I know it's just it was really it was a really different experience back then it was much more technical and it was like a lot more slow and there were huge limitations like um was that an issue for you or was it magic for you from day one and you just kept you know you sort of just kept that that passion in mind as you were moving from a traditional medium to a digital medium i think for me it was just sort of magic from day one and it 
you know, I was just going to figure it out because I wanted to make something. Um, and I think that's how I've always kind of approached my career is like, I'll just stumble into it and beat my head against the wall until I figure it out or, or uh, move on. <laughs> and I think for me, like back in the day, you know, power animator was what I was trained on. I was on $10,000 SGI machines and that were super proprietary. Um, so it was very, um, extremely like cost prohibitive at the time. So I just kind of committed myself to living in the lab and taking advantage of the access that I had. And then I think my career just kind of developed from having that mentality. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important for the young listeners on, on, on the airwaves out there to, re to realize that like at the time, yeah, like if you were running something like a lab or you were in a lab and using a computer, those seats were incredibly, incredibly rare and really expensive. And um, I can remember even just printers at the time being like, wow, waiting for a printer to print a picture was like, you know, it took forever. And if you had access to like a, a wax printer, um, you were like doing like a, you know, matrox printer, you were doing so great. <laughs> and like, and, and, and it, it felt like to me, it felt like being let into this really, really, really exclusive club that like very few people in the real world even knew that that stuff was available. Was it like that for you? Yeah, I think I, I just sort of followed my curiosity and, and immediately was very aware of like being the only, the only other in the room, but it never became a barrier for me. I was always more interested in learning um, and, and making things. Um, so for me, it's always been chasing, chasing what can I do next? What can I make? Um, yeah. What's the new thing? How can I inspire people? Um, how can I make something meaningful? Is always what I'm, I'm searching for. What was the first thing that you remember really being like super proud of? Like, wow, I'm so glad that I was able to do this. Like, was it a technical achievement? Was it, was it that you were able to push the look on something? Like what was, what was that, that first like big wow for you in your early career? I think my big wow for me is I, I started as, you know, a senior artist at EA um, prior to my first job. Um, and luckily in my first job, I got to dabble in, in a few different areas of character development. So I, I got to learn a, a wider set of skills than um, I would have at a smaller studio. So once I got to EA as a senior artist, I immediately was on like the character creator team and, you know, started looking at, you know, all the assets we had to make. And I'm like, I can't make my hair. I can't, I can't make myself in the game. So I would just sort of start adding things to the character creator so that I can yeah. make my hair <laughs> and, <laughs> and my skin and like to do various things to, to be a bit more representative. And like nobody batted an eye. It was like they said, take it out, you know. So I was able to kind of even then like I was like bringing in weaves and scanning them in so that our characters' braids looked, you know, realistic. And yeah. that was sort of me kind of just – starting to know that I can sneak in my ideas here, um, even if they're not necessarily planned for. Yeah, I think for me, that was the same thing, but from a game design perspective, where it was like, well, you know, you don't always have to make games about accumulating constantly, you can make games about giving back to your community and like, building a better community. And like, there are ways to make games that aren't about conquest and colonization. But it was the same thing as like, you put it in, and then you wait, and you see if anybody says anything about it. And if nobody does, then you can move on. When you, when you were working on those early teams, did you see yourself as someone who wanted to be a leader? Because you seem to me like the minute I met you, I was like, you know, you just really, you have this presence, like you're really, you're willing to say what needs to be said and to do what needs to be done. Were you always that way? Or did you start off, you know, more shy and then move into that? I think I started more shy. I think I was vocal to the people that I trusted. 
Um, but, you know, being at a big studio like EA and like literally being the only black woman on the floor, it's like only so pe- many people you're willing to open up to first. Yeah. Um, but after a while, you kind of build trust and you also see who is around you and the decisions they make and how they affect you. And you start to realize, like, I need to start speaking up or I'm going to be steamrolled in this situation. <laughs> um, so you start to, you know, own your own in those situations and for your own self-interest and then also as a leader, someone who naturally wants to speak for others and, and look out for others, um, I kind of also stepped up in those ways as well so that my entire departments wouldn't be negatively affected. So I think for me, it's always come down to like, how can I make it better for someone who's behind me or alongside me in the trenches? Yeah. There was a lot of, um, at that time in game development, there were a lot of production practices, especially for artists, I think that were really not very humane, right? There were a lot of expectations and there were a lot of crunches. Did you experience that in your, in your early, in your early uh, work? And were you able to sort of advocate for, for more humane and like just practices on the, just on the floor? Yeah, I definitely experienced that. I mean, you know, I was, I came on at EA around the time they were in the middle of, you know, their overtime lawsuit. So they were, you know, in the, you know, in the midst of, you know, being held to account and at that time for their labor practices. So for me, I kind of came in when they were starting to get better, but there were definitely times where, you know, scope was just uh, way out of whack and the team was sort of, you know, asked to over, overachieve. And in those moments, I had to always kind of look out for myself as much as I could, while also trying to balance, you know, the general peer pressure that those situations put the whole team on. And so for me, I always had to advocate because I was a parent um, and I had to really be careful with my time. Yeah. Um, And I think I just kind of really had to put my foot down about that. Um, And at times when I didn't, you know, my, my child suffered. So you learn that pretty quickly. Yeah, you know, I actually think that this is, I remember this being a big issue on The Sims as well. Like there were a lot of parents and people that really cared about um, working in that space of being creative, but it wasn't their whole life. And then when you went out to the wider EA community, it wasn't always that way. And I remember thinking uh, when I left The Sims and then moved down to EALA, just missing the the voice of a more integrated and like diverse team where where there were parents, um, both men and women, on the team that were advocating for for a, like a basically a livable lifestyle. Um, and I think it is something that we don't we don't talk about that much. I mean, even today, right? We're looking at pulling um, family leave from the from the package that they're trying to push through Congress right now because it's not really prioritized. Um, as as a parent, what were some of the things that you did to to make uh, to make it work? Because I think that there are probably parents out there that could 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 benefit from hearing about that. Well, yeah, I had the double whammy. I was like a single parent and working in games, which is like <laughs> insane. <laughs> Gee, um, yeah, playing on expert mode. Yeah. So talk about like multitasking master here. Um, But for me, it it really came down to, I was very fortunate to have a blessed support network. You know, my, my family was with me. Um, My mother, I was supporting her so she can be around to to assist so I can have my career. Um, And so I was very fortunate that I had resources that I think some people don't have. Um, In addition, I was always, you know, very strict about my time in the office. Like I was there on time. I often worked through lunch um, until I got wiser about that. <laughs> and then I, uh, you know, there was a solid time I had to leave to go pick up my kid before daycare. And, you know, there's not much I can do around that. Um, I did 
put my foot down about not, I did not bring my machine home because I knew that that was just sort of, I would never be present for my child in that case. So I think you just have to, you have to make it work and then you have to accept that, you know, you may not get promoted as quickly because you're not around at 9 PM having beers. And that's just how it was. Yeah. I think this is actually also something that a lot of people probably, especially now in the pandemic, don't realize that it was a, it was very much a culture driven by connecting, um, you know, the producers especially had to work together to figure out what, what the projects were doing and to compare notes on, you know, just little things like budgets and schedules and headcount. And there was always a negotiation going on inside a larger company around where heads went and who was crunching the worst and what things were behind schedule. And so if you weren't in that conversation, it could be really difficult for you, especially as you rose through the ranks. Like what was your first big promotion and, and how did you, um, how did you navigate sort of getting the information that you needed for your people when you couldn't really participate in that like sort of secondary power structure? Um, I honestly grew my career by changing jobs. Smart. That was the fastest way. Um, you know, after idling around EA for a few years and realizing like the boys club wasn't going to be helping me, um, I decided it was time to leave and I started moving forward my career by changing jobs. And that's how I mostly grown my career. I think the only promotion I had was from art manager to art director at Double Fine. And that was more of a correction because that's what my title should have been. Yeah. So you, you basically w would suss out a place and then move to move to the best next opportunity, which I think is actually something that a lot of people had to do at that time because there weren't really feedback mechanisms for improving your work quality uh, on the floor. And so it was really important to do that. I did the same thing. So moved from one place to another and then eventually on to onto, you know, a non-EA location, right? Um, mm -hmm. when, when, you got, when you got promoted um, and started taking on, on responsibility, what were the things that you felt were really um, important as a leader to sort of, um, to, to build into your team framework, uh, you know, as an artist and as a creative? And like, did you bring those values um, with you to, I, I assume that you did, to your, to your, to your new jobs and how did you, how did you integrate them? I think for me, the first primary thing I try to establish is trust with my teams. Um, and that is being able to hear and receive feedback. Um, and that, you know, you kind of do that through two, through one-on-ones and creating a culture where people feel like they can contribute. And then I very intentionally like run my meetings a specific way, my brainstorms a specific way, um, it, with the whole principle of making sure that everyone has a space to speak for themselves and express themselves and that, you know, anyone's ideas are good, not just, you know, the loudest people's in the room. So yeah. for me, it's really about establishing the tone and tenor of how a team should communicate, um, extremely facilitates how well they work later. Um, and in addition to that, you know, encouraging people to have wild ideas at the right time. You know, you can't have wild ideas at the end of the project, but at the beginning when you're, you're like moonshotting, it's great. And so it's like, creating processes that help facilitate creativity is where I found I get the best results. And what were some of the things that you, um, that you tried to move away from? Like how, can you explain like, like how environments, uh, didn't feel supportive or weren't conducive to that? Was it that like, uh, you could hear your team, but no one could hear you? Or was it that like, there just were entrenched, uh, sort of like, financial goals? Like what were the kinds of things that you saw keeping companies from being at their best at that time? I think that definitely a lot of it was entrenched culture. You know, a lot of these spaces were very like male dominated. 
So you'd enter a meeting and, you know, there's an agenda and there's one person running it and, and doing most of the talking and you'd have to hope somebody answered you if you raised your hand and maybe you'd get to say something. And I immediately, immediately wipe that out with my meetings because as soon as you have one person who's controlling the conversation, they're controlling the ideas and then no one else's good ideas get to rise to the top. So for me, that really came down to like when we're brainstorming a specific feature or a boss, for example, you know, the brainstorms are structured with like the seven brainstorming rules. You know, you, you, you don't say no, don't say if or what you say, yes. And, and you try to expand on the idea. And if you have nothing to add, you know, don't say anything. Um, so it's like trying to create a culture where people are not, you know, negative in order to seem like they're smarter than everyone else, or they actually have to have better ideas. So they're smarter than everyone else. I think this is so important because uh, these days it, it's hard to imagine just how much of a straitjacket there was, you know, on leadership and how much it really was like there would be a room and a bunch of people in it that all looked the same and had the same perspective. They would make up a schedule. They would come out of the room. They would communicate that schedule to their lieutenants. The lieutenants would pull you in a room and they would communicate the schedule to you and you wouldn't really have any say sometimes and even in in really large creative changes which I mean I try to imagine that now and it it just seems like wow how was that the way it was but it really was like lockstep almost like a military hierarchy in a lot of the places I worked and it felt so not inclusive on a creative way that like you look back and you wonder how did anyone make anything successful in that space how did you encourage your employees to sort of like grow and learn? And like, what were the ways that you grew and learned? Because you weren't probably being supported in that sort of in that practice um, organically internally to the organization. Like, where did you find support? What were the things that you did? Like, if you found yourself today in an organization like that, what would be the resources and the kinds of things that you would encourage in, in, in your employees, but also, uh, you know, in, in your fellow leaders? I think at the end of the day, uh, my goal is always trying to find a way to foster creativity as much as I can. Um, and the first way you do that is one, you know, allowing people to express themselves because that's where creativity comes from and to creating frameworks where people can contribute in a structured way. So for example, um, if we're trying to work on a feature, uh, or, uh, enemy, for example, we'll all get together and start all drawing at the same time, you know, and there's like a timed interval where we'll all draw and then we'll come together and share our ideas and everyone gets equal time. Um, so that everyone feels that they can contribute to the discussion. And from that, we try to make sure that, you know, the best ideas are kind of taken and pulled forth. So it's really about like in the moment with your team, making sure that as much information and creativity can come out of the team in the at that time and capturing as much of that as possible. And then you take that back and kind of dole it out and figure out how that's going to work as a schedule and how to, you know, detective work that together. But most design is done so it's very top down. And I think when we were working on Psychonauts, when I first started on the team, the lead at that time was very much that regimented, militaristic, hierarchy-based design, and that just completely did not work. So we really had to kind of gut the whole team and put people in like small strike teams where they can really discuss like, what is this moment? What are all the pieces that are going to come together? What is the actual design here? Before we start dictating, like, what this is just from one person's voice. And that is how you could play that and feel that when you play Psychonauts. Like, every single level feels like a new 
space. And so it really comes down to how people communicate and that there is respect in that communication and a respect for the creative process through that. Yeah, so let's talk a little about Psychonauts. Like you're working on an, uh, on a sequel. So, you know, there's like a legacy of the look and feel of the game that is there obviously before. But you also like like exactly what you're talking about. You want to create space for new voices and like update it. And it came out in a very different environment than the previous titles. So what were some of the things that you're like really proud of your team about? And like, what are some of the things that you'd like to showcase from from the title, which is, you know, doing awesome. And everyone is really excited to have it out. It's obviously had fans for, for decades, you know, people love it. Um, tell us a little bit about the production and, and, and what you're proud of it and, and what you think worked really well. Yeah, Psychonauts has been a crazy wild ride for the last four years. Um, it's I could say there's been like two or three different versions of the game <laughs> until we got, <laughs> we kind oh, of landed have this problem. <laughs> yes, where we kind of landed at a sweet spot. Um, so I think, you know, watching this team go through the process of unearthing and the journey of what this game is has been just amazing. Um, particularly, you know, seeing specific women on the team that I empowered kind of come, you know, step up and like really own the creative vision of certain sections of the game. Um, Emily Johnstone um, did an amazing job on the helmet level, um, which we call brain in the jar um, officially. Mm. Um, and, you know, that all kind of came from me empowering her to have her vision come through in that level. Um, and so, for me, it's moments like those, uh, particularly, I really love Bob Bottles. That's, I think, thematically one of the hardest levels we had to really pull off because it has some really hard themes. Um, so we had to come up with a structure that one honored the challenges that Bob was having and to also tell his story in a humane way while also being fun. That's not really easy to do. Um, yeah, well, so, for, for, for those of us who don't know what Bob Bottles is, can you give us a little bit of a background about that character and the struggle that they were experiencing? Sure. Um, Bob Zanotto um, is one of the original Psychic Seven. He's one of the main characters from the game. Um, and you kind of find him toward the end of the game in a greenhouse. And um, he's, you know, obviously drunk and he doesn't want anyone to enter his space. Um but there's a little kind of vine there from his subconscious that's kind of asking you for help. And so you enter his brain and his brain is kind of altered because of all the alcoholism that he's you know, suffering with. And through the journey, through his brain and through these three bottles, you kind of uncover the seeds of the painful memories of, of why he is the way he is. And you kind of help him process this um, to at least come back with you to, to come back to the psychic seven. So it's a really sensitive topic to talk about alcoholism, but we really tried to tackle it in a very humane way. That's awesome. So I interrupted you. Continue telling us about how awesome Psychonauts 2 is, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, for me, the big thing about boss bottles is there's just one specific bottle that is dedicated to his uh, lover who died. Um, and so the, the whole level you're kind of chasing, um, you know, the, the cake, the wedding cake topper of this, you know, man that you love that you can't ever see again because he, you know, he died before, you know, you know, too soon. And so like the beautiful poetry of like traveling through this wedding cake as you're trying to reach the person you love is I think one of the best levels we've made in the game. That is really amazing. Did you, did you feel like it was hard to, um, 
to to innovate on the look? Was it was it that it was technical constraints, you know, design stuff? Like, where did your team sort of and your your vision for the game like uh, interface with with the other challenges on the title? And like, what were what were some of the triumphs that you think you were really able to lead uh, from your position? I was really fortunate that I inherited this great digital role legacy from Scott Campbell and Peter Chan. And so the first game had a very strong language. It was very Burton-esque and inspired by that um, sort of style um, of German expressionism. So we kind of really looked at like what's really working here and let's not mess with that. Um, but let's also see like, you know, this game was made in 2005 and the technology has leaps and bounds forward. What can we do with that look with new technology and tell this amazing story that Tim has written. So for me, the goal was pushing it to the future to now so that it feels like it's you know, honoring the legacy of the franchise, but also feels fresh and new to players of today. And also most importantly, like really selling the powerful moments and the impactful moments of the story while also making it feel interactive while you're going through all of this. So it, it was an intense challenge, um, but bringing that style forward and I think really focusing on like the crazy narratives that you kind of have to go through and how to tell and show those moments is why the game is kind of really extremely popular and like hitting all the right points right now. Yeah, I think also it's just that when you're working on a level-based game, you're doing so much. I mean, we're used to working in spaces now where, um, you know, where 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 the the game is really a series of maps that you move around on, and you're interacting with other people. Um, the art of making a really great level design for a single person to go through and experience a narrative and have it be compelling, and also, you know, the gameplay is compelling, but the story comes through that there's those visual elements are tied together with the story and, and doing doing all the heavy lifting that they need to do to make that experience feel rich is something that, you know, fewer and fewer developers are actually experiencing today on a large scale. Um, what were some of the things that you think um, were were really key to making the, the levels successful from an art perspective, like just in terms of construction or process? Yeah, for uh, I came onto the project about a year after it had started, and we had gotten to like first playable, like a vertical slice. Um, and there were some plans on how the levels were going to be built at the time that I was, you know, a little concerned about because um, I was worried about using like a kit passing process for like developing the levels in like a yeah. automated way. Um, but because of time and schedule, we were trying to like make that plan work. And then in about a year into development, it just became like painfully clear that this was not working. Um, so over Christmas break, I really kind of masterminded a plan on how to restructure the team so that it was really more about like structuring the levels around, you know, one, these big story moments that Tim has written and two, making sure that there are like enough you know, connective tissue created by the design team between these moments so that we had a layout of what an actual map or level would look like rather than kit bashing our way through it, which is what the original plan was. So it really came down to like throwing everything out the bathwater a little bit and saying, okay, we have to find a way to actually be more improvisational about our design um, from an art standpoint and from a design standpoint in order for this to work because everything about comedy is timing. 
Um, and if our, our levels and our level beats are like, if you know, there's taking too long for people to get pre story moments or taking too long between like puzzles or they're, t- you know, like that rhythm completely screws up comedy. So we had to really kind of, you know, throw away the formulaic approach that you do at most studios and really think about how can we improv our way through this. And I think through that process, we started really developing more you know, fun, focused, and experimental gameplay moments. And then the art kind of helped support and, and bring that forward as well. And sometimes the art would influence those moments and vice versa. So the teams themselves got to play around with what they were actually making instead of going through like an assembly line process. Yeah. And, you know, no big deal. You were also dealing with a pandemic and also getting acquired by Microsoft. So, like, it wasn't like there was anything else going on at the time. (laughs) Nothing at all. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. And then we had George Floyd. We had all this trauma with the election and, like, everything was just kind of exploding around you. I mean, like, I don't, I don't mean to put too fine a point on it, but I think you're kind of a goddess. Like I just, this is like a, it was a really difficult time that you were, I mean, like just over Christmas break, kind of trying to figure out how to fix this. There was so much else going on. Like when you look back at the title and like the process, I mean, surely you must feel like you grew. Um, but like, what did you take away from, from developing something so amazing in such a traumatic and like, tumultuous time there are a lot of lessons to i think be learned trying to lead people through like a major tragic period of loss i mean five million people have died um that's not a small amount of people um that's a lot of loss and that amount of loss affects everyone in some small way so you really start to understand how important empathy is in those moments um yeah the schedule is important but you know not giving someone grace when they're going through something hard is even worse, you know? So you have to really think about how important is this in relation to like what else is going on right now? Um, yeah. And in addition to that, you have to really, and really highlighted how important making meaningful content can be. I think we all as a team kind of really leaned into the fact that we were still making something joyful at a very hard time. So I think that that kind of helps like bring the team together. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm really hearing that and appreciating that. And I think a lot of people now more than ever, they understand and embody this need for compassion and like grace that what we're talking about at the beginning of, of, of the chat, right? Like this idea that it used to be that you just went to work and you were just so thrilled to be working on a game that you would literally fall in line and like you would do what the producer said and you would crank it out. And if you had to, you would bring your machine home. Like, I've still to this day have had to tell people, no, you can't do that. (laughs) Like try to tell people that's not an appropriate behavior. And I think that more and more people now because of the pandemic and all of the social unrest and the change that we so desperately need to see happen, like there's more and more people now that understand that this, this, this sort of prioritization is really important. Um, Outside of Double Fine, you're super active in thinking about how to amplify new voices, how to bring more black creators into the space. Um, you've been to the white house, you know, I mean, like tell us a little bit about how that lesson has matriculated outside of your game development practice and like where you think we should be headed as an industry and as a society and sort of making it really, truly more, more equitable and diverse. Um, and not just sort of, you know, having diversity salad and like, you know, talking about it and making people perform their blackness, for example, as a way of justifying corporate enterprise. 
Yeah, it's been you know quite a journey for me. Um, in addition to working full time, well, more than full time often in the game industry, I've also been on the board and teaching at GameHeads, uh, which is a essentially gaming accelerator for Oakland youth from the age of around fourteen up to like twenty five or twenty six. Some of them are thirty. We can't get rid of them. Um, <laughs> I'll probably be there till we're 45. Um, but um, so we spent a lot of time. Um, it's all your program. It's free. We train them how to make their first game. And then over the summer, there's like an intensive demo period where, you know, there's a, ends with a big showcase. And um, so through the process of a year, they learned the full development cycle and all the concepts of game development. And often they come back year over year over year. Um, so we're now getting a lot, several of our students hired at large studios. Um, I think we placed like 20 to 25 students this year at large studios in either intern or full-time employment. Um, so we're building our own little pipeline, um, one, one, one great student at a time. This is, I think it's so important to give back, but I also understand that it's so much work Like as a person who actively engages with game heads through the, you know, the University of Santa Cruz and like is trying to continue that pipeline into the college system. Like I find it so amazing that it ends up being, you know, some of the least protected and least represented people that do the most work. How can, how can people that want to help help? Like what are the ways in which they can facilitate this in their own communities or through, through in, engaging with, with groups like GameHeads? You know, I think one of my favorite quotes is from James Brown. Um, I don't need you to give me nothing. Just open the door and I'll get it myself. Yeah. Um, we're not asking you to open up your wallets. What we want you to do is to open up your minds and share your knowledge with our students so they can open up their own doors and get it themselves. Um, so for us, what we are always looking for are mentors. Donations are also extremely important. Um, you know, yeah. we're fortunate that, um, you know, we're, we've got a new location and we're able to build a new lab for our students, which is something we desperately need for. So for us, it's really like coming into our organization and sharing what you know, sharing your knowledge. We're, we're training students to be the next generation of game developers. I like to think of it more as a guild than I do a school. Like, they come back to us year over year to learn more skills and we show up every Saturday because they're always want to know more. And that's just how we want everyone who approaches the organization to uh, kind of approach us. Like these are years long commitment we're looking for, not like a one-off PR drop. When you, when you look at yourself as a creator and someone who can share knowledge, I think that one of the things that's so exciting about Double Fine and the way that, you know, you've, you've worked there is that you haven't just always just on art direction and you haven't always just been an advocate, you have your own ideas. Can you tell us a little bit about, about Amnesia Fortnite and how that's a process that kind of helps to open doors for, for people even, even inside of a company? Because I think a lot of companies could, could learn from that process and, and hearing about your experience with, be, with it would be really great. Yeah, um, that was a really fun ride of making a game in two weeks. I, I can now apologize to my students for having to put them through that for a whole summer. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, Amnesia Fortnite uh, is a program, just for people who don't know, uh, run by Double Fine, where either between projects or when like they're in the middle of like a big project and they need to kind of loose, loosen things up, they do like a two-week game jam. And like you can pitch a game, anyone in the company can pitch a game, and one of four projects are picked. Um, then the studio is broken up into teams and then 
everyone tries to make a game in two weeks. So it's, it's bananas creativity fest <laughs> with a lot of stress for the people who have to lead, but it's also really fun because people can do a different role within the studio. Um, like if you are a, you know, programmer, you want to learn character design and that's what you want to do for those two weeks, you're more than, you know, open to doing that. And I think there's a lot of cross learning that happens when people in a studio are allowed to kind of switch roles and play in that way. So last, I was at 2019, my game was chosen called The Hideous. So I got to make uh, my first, uh, I guess, self-made IP. Tell us a little bit about it. So The Hideous is a game. Um, it's sort of like I was inspired a lot by the Goose game, but I wanted something to be a little bit more dark and sinister. So I was really into kind of Lovecraftian lore at that time. I think I was um, reading Lovecraft Country. So I thought, how can we kind of use you know, Cthulhu psychological lore um, and the sort of idea of human manipulation as an interesting way to create a puzzle game? And that's essentially what the hideous is. Yeah, I love that book. And actually, um, I really I love Lovecraftian games. Um, Silicon Knights uh, uh, made Eternal Darkness. I don't know if you remember that title so from so long ago, <laughs> but it was like you know, as you play the game, you would get more crazy, <laughs> and things would seem more insane as you were moving into the more of the like the psychosis of being of being envelop enveloped in the the Cthulhu nightmare. And each character you played had a had an ending. They all died. <laughs> so you would always be playing through and then you'd be like, I know this person's going to die. And no matter how much you anticipated it, it was always such a scary and shocking ending to their life, you know? And at the very end, you know, the character sort of discovers this whole Cthulhu universe. And I always, always, always wish there was a sequel <laughs> because I, I love that, that universe. Do you, do you like scary games? Are you into, are you in, are you into the macabre and, and a little bit of a goth yourself? I think it goes back and forth. Um, I generally tend to like puzzles games, if whether they're happy or sad. I think as long as my brain is working and I'm not necessarily in a fl you know, flight or uh, fight response, that I'm kind of in my happy place when it comes to gaming. <laughs> um, so for me, that's what I kind of gravitate to, not necessarily like hardcore horror because I just don't like I don't like feeling hunted but I don't mind hunting yeah what I loved about those those um eternal darkness puzzles was that they were a lot of them was just like trying to maintain enough calm to get to the place where you could get to the end of the story but then the deaths were always really disturbing so <laughs> what are you playing right now that you're excited about um I'm jumping around a little bit because I'm doing research because I'm working on a new game idea um but right now I'm, I'm really enjoying It Takes Two and I'm kind of starting to explore a few more cooperative games. Um, I'm really interested in the, particularly the energy of couch co-op and how that could be kind of turned on its head instead of, you know, hunting and, and fighting. Like how, what else can you do next to the couch with someone that you like or, or are friends with or to use friends pass, you know, with someone you know to experience together. Um, so for me, I think my goal is to make one more meaningful content and two more games that kind of help solve the loneliness problem that everyone is experiencing. Um, while also, you know, being about joy and humor, because you know, this is my second or third game now that I want to focus on humor. Um, Cause I just find like a, it's a, an often unexplored area of games that I think we could actually be spending more time in and exploring what we can do to make people laugh. Why do you think it's so hard to make humor games? Is it, because it, it, it really is hard to pull it off. And like, not everybody is a brilliant writer 
or or has the skill set. But I do wish there were more funny games. Like, what do you think are some of the key key things that you have to really get good at or nail in order to really pull it off? I mean, I think you have to have good writing. Like, there's no way around it. And then the other thing is timing. Like, if your effects aren't going off at the right time when a joke is going off, then the joke doesn't land. So it really is the same challenges that you have if you're just trying to perform comedy on stage. Uh, but now you're in a game system and there's a lot more factors to consider. Um, but so I think that's why people don't necessarily get into it as much because they're not enough comedy writers who are writing. Um, and two, but I, I do think that there are people who are writing really funny stuff. Um, like I, I think I was playing um, the game from night school. What's it called? After party. And there's some really fun, fun and funny dialogue. Um, there's also some really, I was like laughing out loud when I was playing boyfriend dungeon when I was just like flirting with my little sports. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, I think gaming is probably hopefully getting more warranted space. We're taking ourselves less seriously and we're not trying to make like the next Scorsese movie. And maybe we're just all, you know, want to laugh a little bit and not take things so seriously. Yeah. I think that we really do need more joy. A lot of the stuff that we've been working on lately as well is really focused on this concept of spending time with people, but like, being able to express yourself also, I think that like right now is a really good time to be working on systems that are, that are expressive and that like make space for just being as weird as you want. Like, I think that the loneliness problem that you talked about, one of the ways that I've been coping with it is just, I dress up crazy every day now. <laughs> like I'm just digging into the crates like of like, oh my God, where's that giant shoulder pad 80s sweater? Or like, where were those huge earrings I bought in Costa Rica? Like just trying to find like, like little things that bring me joy and memories of the time when I could travel and when it was safe to be in other places in the world. Cause I have picked up little things all over the world as I've been around for my own travels. Like what are you doing to stay, to stay creative and elevated despite shipping a game in the pandemic? You know, I think, uh, if you would ask me a few months ago before shipping, I would be like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I believe I did. Actually, that's why I'm asking now. Cause I remember the last couple chickens was like, Ugh. but yeah. Is there anything else but psychomats? <laughs> yeah, I remember you um, said. <laughs> but that's shipping a game. Um, but now that I'm out of it, um, I think, you know, the first thing I did was take a mental health break. I like immediately went on a plane to Europe, like the day after the game shipped and I was like checking out. Yeah. Um, and I think that that helps. And I think since then and throughout the pandemic movement is sort of the thing that I, I try to focus on. And then, you know, as you spoke to spending time, like doing self care by dressing up occasionally and like you know, trying to practice remembering that I, I look like a woman sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I'm not just a pile of leggings and a hoodie all the time, you know? Um, and for me, definitely movement. I was doing a lot of like taking outside dance classes, like anything to kind of get some communal energy um, while also like moving my body and just like having fun and disconnecting. Yeah, that and painting. Oh, really? What When you paint, what do you paint? Are you oil, watercolor? What are you doing? I'm currently taking oil classes. Um, I was using like watercolor before. Um, so I think I'm just, I'm kind of playing around with oil right now. Um, hoping to incorporate more physical medium into like my character design work. Yeah. Because um, I just, I just draw better on paper than I do in a computer. It's just something I've accepted. Um, yeah. So I'm trying to like rethink about how I can make my process more physical uh, before it gets digital. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of watercolors as well as a study for a game thing that I'm doing outside of outside of work, just a, a, like a research project for, for my art. But like, 
I also feel really strongly that like using physical media during the pandemic was so, so helpful for me. I did unfortunately buy a pair of roller skates and then sprain my knee. So, so my physical movement exercise was short-lived, <laughs> which, which I'm now recovering from a sprained knee, which is its own, like, especially as you approach 50 as I am, you know, you're like, oh man, why did I do that? should not have gotten so high and gone roller skating. That was a bad idea. But like when I think about when I think about moving forward, you know, one of the things I think we can we can both look to look forward to is like the ways in which this time gave us the opportunity to get to know ourselves better. Um, you know, you seem like you're you're poised for a big move. Do you have plans? Are you are you are you thinking about the future? Like, what do you what do you envision for yourself in in the next five years? Because to me, it's like the prime of your career when you're like moving, you know, into your mid forties. It's like it's the time when you can like really make the hugest impact because you you don't give as many fucks, and also like you have so much experience under your belt. Like, what's next for you? Well, I'm definitely at zero fucks. <laughs> So that's a good place to be. This is a place where you negotiate <laughs> from, right? Yes. Um, <laughs> um, so for me, I think right now, my in my previous career movements, I was always kind of running from one thing to the next thing. Um, and typically at this point, I'd be like, oh my God, this game is over. I got to find the next job. And I'm like, hustle, hustle, hustle. Yeah. And I'm kind of like not there right now. Um, shipping Psychonauts was a big deal. Um, yeah. And it was a lot of work. Um, that was like a lot of moving pieces. So for me, I'd want to, I'm actually like thinking, really focusing on like, what do I want to make? Like I've made other people's games for 20 years from one style to the next. I've done it all. I can break it down for you and build a schedule. I am not interested in that part. <laughs> I've done it to death, right? I know I've been, I've climbed that mountain, right? Um, and right now my second mountain is game heads and continuing to grow that pipeline and that community. And I think the next step, the natural next step is, you know, creating a platform for more creators of color and yeah. creating content and using my skills to create the next you know, broad range of IPs that's going to appeal to the new players that are coming online. I think people don't realize how many new people are getting internet access and they're not from, you know, predominantly white countries. These are people no. in India and Africa and South America, and they want to see content that relates to them that they can relate to. And um, I think particularly the students at Gameheads are poised for that because many, much of our students are from immigrant communities so they can bridge gaps. Yeah. So what does that look like? What is a studio of people who understand multicultural um, development and, and multiple communities? What does that look like? And what is what is a player base going to be attracted to there? And I think that that's the future. It isn't who's making games now. It's who's making games tomorrow. Yeah, I really agree with you. And I think that when you look, especially at platforms like Roblox, that's where we've moved and like the creators that are in that space and the way that it en engages uh, diverse teams there's actually teams already together that are that are creating these kinds of spaces for themselves online. And I'm just really encouraged that you're coming out of this experience with poise and grace as you are and into an environment that I think that can really see you and hear you. And I just want to say that you're an inspiration. You, you have actually come to speak at UC Santa Cruz. You've inspired my students. 
Um, my team obviously looks up to you and, and really, really is really encouraged to see you out there being you. And I think that you just deserve props for doing that. So thank you for taking the time to speak with us today and really, you know, enjoy this break and good luck on your next adventure because I know it'll be fierce. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And I hope um, I gave some pearls of wisdom to anyone who needed to hear them today. Thank you for joining us for the Game Makers Notebook. For more information on the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, our podcasts, and our other initiatives, please visit www.interactive.org. For Academy members and interested developers and publishers, submissions are now open for the 25th Annual DICE Awards, the premier peer-reviewed celebration of the best in interactive entertainment. Make sure to submit your 2021 game for consideration by Tuesday, December 7th at 5 p.m. PT. For more information, visit interactive.org.